Good morning, church family. If you go to our website currently and look at the About Us section, you will see uh, a bunch of statements about who we are and what we want to be in this world. And there are four statements in particular that uh, call us to the community that we're trying to create here at Lake Avenue Church. These have been long statements that we have made and continued to pursue and we are talking about in this particular series. Those statements are that we want to be a kingdom community, a community that reflects the kingdom of God. We want to be an evangelistic community, a community that speaks about the, the death and the resurrection and the saving life of Jesus. We want to be a God-glorifying community, and we want to be a reconciling community. And as we thought about how we wanted to do that in this Lenten series, it was so clear to us that we wanted um, a voice, a new voice into this space. And so um, this morning, I have the privilege of, of uh, introducing to you the Reverend Dominique Gilliard. Um, Dominique has been with us uh, over years, actually, connecting with this church. Uh, he first connected when I first showed up six years ago um, as a, uh, he, he shepherded our high school uh, group um, in Oakland uh, as, as we continued to learn more about the city there and, and engaged in, in, in mission there and has, has come back um, in different times. Uh, Dominique is the Director of Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation for the Evangelical Covenant Church, which means he pastors a bunch of pastors in the process of figuring out what it means to continue to do this work. Um, he is also ordained in that church um, and got his MDiv at North Park Seminary. Uh, he is married to Catherine, and they have a son, Teray. They live outside of Atlanta. Um, he, has, he has helped this community um, understand, and our leaders think critically and theologically about incarceration. His previous book, uh, Rethinking Incarceration, is a fantastic um, engagement of theology and the understanding of what it means to be in the carceral system here in the United States. His current book, Subversive Witness, uh, helps us think critically and theologically about our witness in the world. And Dominique um, is here to talk a little bit about that. We gave him a passage, Matthew 11, 1 through 6, and as any uh, good pastor, he said, well, um, you, need to, you need to expand that for me so that I can actually get into the context of it all. And so he's asked me to read a little bit more. So if you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? I'll be reading from Luke chapter 3, verses 3 through 14, and then Matthew 11, verses 1 through 6. Uh, a little bit before three. The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert, John the Baptist. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him, Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, 
Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is ready at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none and the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Do not collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and do not accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. And now Matthew, Verses, chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to him. Are you the one who has come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and, and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. The word of the Lord. Would you help me welcome Dominique Gilliard. Good morning, friends. It is my pleasure to be with you. Um, it's a joke uh, when you're on pastoral teams and you get selected to preach a text that might not be the text that you ideally would pick to bring the word of the Lord. And I think I pulled a short straw in some ways this morning. But with that said, the beautiful thing about scripture is that we're never supposed to read it in isolation from the broader context of biblical truth. And when we connect scripture, we start to see some powerful connections to actually start to transform how we read and understand and interpret and live out the gospel. And so we're going to do some of that this morning. And this, this passage is a passage during this season when we are discerning what does it mean for us to prepare not only ourselves to go to the cross, not only to go through Holy Week, but for us to live in a similar kind of way that John the Baptist is called to prepare the way for the Lord. You see, John was called to prepare the way for the Lord in Jesus's first coming where Jesus comes and inaugurates the kingdom of God and declares that things have become new and that God is in the midst of reconciling all things in the world. But you see, Jesus is going to come again, sisters and brothers. And as we live in anticipation of that return, we as the hands and feet of Christ are the ones who are supposed to be actively preparing the way for the Lord. And so we're going to press into what it looks like for us to be on mission 
in echoes of what John was called to do in preparing the way of the Lord in our day and time. But to do that faithfully, I think we first need to understand a little bit more about John and what John had to do. You see, John is a beautiful example for us because John knew his role and he understood what it meant for him to live faithfully on mission. You see, John the Baptist was a person who had clarity about who he was and what he was called to. He did not let his ego or ambition cloud his vision and to distract him from his mission. Even as he was calling people to repentance and baptizing them, he was clear that he was not the Messiah. And that his mission simply was just to pay, prepare the way for the Lord and to make straight the paths. I love the humility that John displays by staying in his lane. You see, John was obviously a gifted evangelist, a transformative minister. As he was out in the wilderness, his ministry was so impactful that people came from Jerusalem, all of Judea, and all of the regions of the Jordan just to come and be baptized by him. John very well could have let that go to his head. And John could have started to deviate from the divine mission that was uh, placed upon his life. But John was clear about who he was and what he was called to. This is a rarity, my sisters and brothers. How many of you know that when the world affirms us, when the world seeks us out, when the world wants to come and be fed by us, we can allow that to, to speak to our ego. And that can be something that can distract us from our created purpose. That can be something that leads us to using our gifts and talents to create beautiful things, but those beautiful things are really rooted in us building a kingdom of our own. You see, John doesn't allow the gifts that God had given him to ultimately lead him away from the mission, but he remains on the narrow path. And in doing so, John is committed and vigilant in what he's called to and as to make God's name known and love shown throughout the world. To do that is not an easy task, but John demonstrates what it looks like to humble ourselves and to remember that we are gifted and talented, but the purpose of our gifts and talents is to make God's name known and love shown in ways that prepare the way for Jesus and invite sisters and brothers into the truth. When John calls people to truth though, you see, I love the way that John talks about repentance. He says that there should be fruit in keeping with repentance. You see, fruit is something that we're all very accustomed with in the church, but it's something that we think about a lot of times as the fruitfulness of our evangelism, the fruitfulness of our outreach, but what about the fruit that comes from our repentance? You see, when we come into a recognition, a revelation of the ways in which we have come up short, the ways in which we have gone astray, scripture calls us not to just confess our sins, but to repent of our sins. And repentance is different than confession. We are in a world where right now, confession's not that tall of a task. 
We have people who confess to wrong. We have people to acknowledge that they might have hurt somebody. But oftentimes, that acknowledgement is not followed up by a turning away from sin and a returning to God and neighbor in right relationship. And that is what John is saying is required of us. I love in Luke when John is preaching the gospel to the crowds and the crowds come and they say, oh, this sounds serious. What should we do to be saved, essentially? And John says to the crowd three different things, which I think is really important. John's response is not just this generic response. He first says to the broader crowd, he says, when they say, what should we do? John answered, anyone who has two shirts, share with them the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. You see, what John's response is declaring is that as Christians, we must understand that we are blessed to be a blessing, that the resources that we possess are not just for us, that we must connect the excess in our lives to the lack in our neighbors' lives, that the blessings that come to us are supposed to flow through us in a way that declares to the world that we serve a God that has created enough for everyone's needs, but not enough for everyone's greed. You see, Jesus makes this explicitly clear in John 13, 34, and 35. He says, I'm going to give you a new commandment, and this new commandment is love one another as I have loved you, and by this the world will know that you belong to me. You see, how we choose to live and love declares to the world that we are kingdom citizens, that we are people who have different priorities than worldly empires, who teach us that all we're supposed to do is get the most that we can get, and we are supposed to climb the social ladder of success to make our children's lives better than our lives were. You see, the truth of Scripture revealed in the book of Jeremiah says that we are called to be people who seek the peace and the prosperity of our communities. Because when we seek our, the communal flourishing, we find our flourishing there. You see, this is a biblical truth that's connected to the story of Jesus and most explicitly highlighted in Philippians 2, where he tells us that we are supposed to take on the mindset of Christ and that we are supposed to do nothing out of selfish ambition. Or can, and we are supposed to put the interest and the priorities of other, uh, interest and needs of others before our own. When we live in this way, it declares to the world that there's something different about who we are. And when people see us living and loving in this way, people are compelled to ask, why would you make such choices? And that's when we get the opportunity to say, it's not because we're some great people with great values and morals, it's because there's a power at work within us that drives us beyond our human limitations, that drive us beyond our self-interest, that compel us to live on mission to make God's name known and love shown. And you know what, sisters and brothers, you can live on mission with me. You can join the family of God and be a part of this transformative presence that are rectifying all of the brokenness that exists. You see, we live in a world that desperately needs to know that the way that things are are not the way that they're supposed to be. And that there is one answer to the problems of our day. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the people of God living on mission. But John doesn't stop there. He doesn't just generically say, this is what it means. Because the next two groups that come up to him are specific people. We see 
the text says that even tax collectors came to be baptized, and we'll go into why that's significant in a little bit, because there's a little story, background with tax collectors that we need to parse out here. But it says, even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they said, teacher, what should we do? And John tells them specifically, don't collect more, any more than what you are required to. And then the soldiers come and say, what should we do? And he says, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. This is important because John is able to prophetically look into the lives of people based on their vocation and their sin and tell them what it means for them to faithfully follow Jesus. You see, he declares that faithfully following Jesus in, a work, in the work that they are called to means refusing to conform to the pattern of this world and to turn a blind eye to the oppression that had become socially acceptable within their fields of work. Scripture repeatedly condemns economic exploitation as systemic sin and denounces leaders who condone it and collude with it. The primary group the scripture indicts for economic exploitation outside of unethical kings and merchants are tax collectors. You see, tax collectors are stigmatized as one of the most unethical jobs in scripture. Biblically, tax collectors are always tied to the most defamed groups, and this is because the vocation was rooted in abuse, coercion, and corruption. On the surface, pairing tax collectors and soldiers seems a little bit odd, but John the Baptist does this because he's trying to address the reality that at his day and time, tax collectors and soldiers will commonly collaborate to cre create a system of economic exploitation that preyed upon the poor. He, they were lining their own pockets by injustice, and John is prophetically saying to them when they say, what does it mean for me to be saved? He said it means for you to, to live for Jesus in, the way, in your vocation, which means that when everybody else around you is cutting corners and doing these things that are going to line their pockets in unethical ways, you don't do it because of who and whose you are. You bear a different witness in this vocation to say that there is a higher calling for leaders. And because we are Christians, we are going to refuse to conform to the pattern of this world that says it's okay to take a little off the top. It's okay to slip a little bit in our pocket. It's okay to use a little imperial muscle. Those are not the ways of the kingdom. Those are the way of worldly empires. And John is trying to help people to realize if you are going to faithfully follow Jesus, you're going to have to make a decision to be people who refuse to do what everyone else does, but who live and love in a way that's distinctively rooted in the love that Jesus first showed us. This is something that's really important because we have to understand that John's trying to help us to see that repentance is costly. Repentance is inconvenient. Repentance is sacrificial. And repentance is also something that's unpopular. I love the way that Justo Gonzalez talks about repentance. He says, it is not good news for those who thrive on injustice, whose power is oppressive and unjust. For them, the good news is first of all possibility and the need for deep and costly repentance. You see, we see this 
later on in the book of Matthew, in Matthew 14, uh, but it's connected to this passage. In verse 2 in this passage, we see that it says that John was in prison. But it doesn't tell us in this passage why John is in prison. John is in prison because after he's out in the wilderness, baptizing people, ministering, proclaiming the word of God, he comes back into civilization. And as he comes back into civilization, he encounters King Herod and all of the unethical ways Herod is ruling and reigning. Well, it comes to John's awareness that Herod is ultimately trying to essentially marry his, uh, his brother's wife. And John the Baptist tells him that it is unlawful for him to do so. Herod is not used to people speaking words of accountability to him. And so when John does that, he says, how does this man have the audacity to tell me what I can and can't do? I'm the king. And the text tells us that he wanted to kill John the Baptist, but he was afraid to do so because the people knew that he was a prophet. And so, Later on in the text, uh, the king gets led astray by his daughter-in-law and all this other stuff, and ultimately he does kill John. But this is one of the things that John really bears witness to, that there is a cost to discipleship. John knew that he had to speak hard words of correction to people in the midst of a sinful culture. John knew that he had to tell people that they could not uh, prioritize the love of money and truly follow Jesus because the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And we see this when he speaks specifically to the soldiers and to the uh, tax collectors, but we also see this when he speaks prophetically to Herod. And so in this, we see that when we talk about what it means to prepare the way of the Lord, it means to be willing to speak truth even when that truth is going to cost us something. And one of the things that the gospel lays bare before us, one of the questions that the gospel consistently asks us within the biblical text is, do we believe that the gospel is still good news when it costs us something? And John here prophetically declares that it is, and he's willing to give his life to prove it. But what's so mysterious and interesting about the text for today now that we know who John is, John's in prison and he's starting to hear about the good deeds of Jesus. And people are telling him about all the things that Jesus is doing. So John has these people who have been following him because the Messiah has not made himself publicly known yet. And so they come and he says, John sends them, he says, go find Jesus and ask him, is he the one that we've been waiting for? And this is a question that I think I want to contextualize for our day and time. As we see the suffering in the world, as we see injustice, as we see the brokenness in our own families, as we, suffer, we see people in our lives suffering from depression, as we see death and we see cancer and we see all these things that are happening all around us, I think we are also asking, is Jesus really the one? Is he the one who can actually come and transform our situations? Is he the one who can actually bring light out of darkness? Is he the one who can meet me in my despair? And I think we ask this question both consciously and unconsciously. And I think we're looking and we're searching. And I know we're here because we know the truth is that Jesus is the one. But sometimes we wonder. 
Sometimes the darkness of the world might make us doubt. Sometimes the darkness of the world might make us look for answers in places that we shouldn't look. And John is in the midst of prison and he's probably wondering, I spoke a prophetic word for Jesus and it landed me in prison. And then in a few days, I'm actually gonna die because the truth I was called to speak. Is Jesus really the one? Is he out there bringing light in the darkness? Is he able to meet me in my despair? And Jesus, John sends his disciples and his disciples go to Jesus and Jesus does what he always does. When people come and ask Jesus a question, you know Jesus doesn't give them an answer. <laughs> Jesus responds with some questions and says, well, what do you see? And John's disciples, the text kind of recalls what John's disciples see. And Jesus basically says, you know, I don't want people just to follow me because I say that I'm the one. I need people to see the truth that is revealed through my actions and my witness in the world. And you see, this is also what so much of the church is waiting to see today. They don't want just us to say that Jesus is Lord. They want to see that Jesus is Lord through how we live and love. They want to see the fruit of our witness. They want to see the fruit of our repentance. They want to see the power of the gospel manifested in the people of God because of the power of the Holy Spirit that sustains us in our witness. And so John's disciples come back and they declare what they've seen. And I love what they see because this passage is directly connected to Luke 4 when Jesus gives us his mission statement in the world. When he says he came to give sight to the blind and to liberate the captives and to proclaim the gospel, the good news to the poor. You see, there's this way in which Jesus is constantly, always identifying with the least of these. And it's a beautiful testimony because, you see, Jesus was fully God and fully man. He could have came into the world in any way that he wanted to. Jesus could have used his power to avoid suffering. Jesus could have used his power to live a plush and pristine life. But instead, Jesus chooses to come in a marginalized body and come from a city in Nazareth that it was believed that nothing good could come from. Jesus chooses to come and experience the reality of refugees. Jesus comes and he ultimately suffers and suffers to the point of being crucified for you and I's sake. Jesus endures uh, the criminal justice system. Jesus endures all of these forms of marginality and in doing so, Jesus prophetically declares that he is truly Emmanuel, God with us in our suffering. You see, I could not follow a God who is not with me in the midst of the suffering of our world. I cannot identify with a God who doesn't know what it means to suffer on the bottom side of worldly empires. I need a God who knows the pain and the heartbreak of what it means to live as one of the least of these. And God is constantly trying to help the church to see that we can't bear a faithful witness if we are not in community with those who suffer. Matthew 25 verses 31 through 46 have been interpreted in a multitude of ways. But at the end of the day, one of the things that passage is really trying to help us to see is the power of proximity. 
You see, when we are not proximate with those who suffer, when we are not proximate with those who are incarcerated, who those who are sick, who those who are hum homeless, with those who don't have food to eat, we can actually start to make their suffering go out of sight and out of mind. And we can actually live our lives uninterruptedly. But Jesus is saying, when we forget to walk alongside of those brothers and sisters, we're not faithfully walking with him. Whatever we didn't do to the least of these, we haven't done unto Jesus. And these aren't just random categories Jesus is naming. Jesus is saying, these are things that I lived. These are realities that I know. And these are realities that my love is supposed to correct in the brokenness of our world. And again, as the hands and feet of Christ, this passage is a passage helping us to understand what it means to live on mission where we are making God's name known and love shown throughout the world. I love how this passage connects repentance and baptism because we want to talk about justice sometimes, but we don't want to talk about Jesus. But then on the flip side, we want to talk about evangelism, but we don't want to talk about justice. But the truth of the gospel is that it is only the gospel of Jesus Christ when it is both evangelism and justice. It is only the gospel of Jesus Christ when it is the both and. And John is calling his disciples to go check out what Jesus is doing in the world because it is transforming the community. And Jesus is saying, I'm not going to tell you who I am. I'm going to show you who I am. And he's, we're seeing the fruit of Jesus' faithfulness in the world, and it is drawing people to him. So as we talk about what it means in this Lenten season to think about preparing the way of the Lord, what it means for us to actually consider what it means for us to go before the cross, what Jesus is telling us that it means is that we have to be people who understand that the words that we say are important, but the lives that we lead are the thing that is going to help people know the goodness of God. I want to show this video real quick that starts to make a lot of these connections that I'm trying to make and what it means to bear a faithful witness in a world that desperately needs to know that something else is possible. A lot of people see justice as the most futile thing you can do with your life. Give your life completely to business and you see the money piling up. Be a health nut, eat right, go to the gym, and your muscles will grow and your body will look good and you'll see results. But when it comes to justice, it seems like you just can't get ahead. You patch up one hole and something else rips open. You bring peace to one region and war breaks out in another. You rebuild after an earthquake and a tsunami hits. And you work and you work and you work and there's never any profit. There's no bank where you can store a surplus amount of justice in. Stability is never permanent. Something always tips and people always ask, is it even worth it? And that question though understandable, it's, I mean, quite frankly, it's ridiculous. And it rarely comes from those who are actually tired from pursuing justice and not just tired of the idea. It rarely comes from people who've labored for years and have good reason to ask it. And you know what they never ask? Those type of people become friends with those who suffer. Family even. 
Because it's one thing to wonder if someone else's freedom is worth fighting for. But when you begin to identify with that someone else, commune with them, that's when the question is no longer worth asking. That's when it becomes offensive even. What do you mean is it worth my time? That doesn't even deserve an answer. I don't care how long it takes. I don't care how many times we fail. I don't care how little progress is made. You never stop fighting for your own. other's own, that we belong to one another. When we see suffering and brokenness and injustice happening in the world, how we respond matters. It communicates something to the world about who Jesus is. And I love this video because it points to this mantra that is so popular in our world right now, in our country in particular, that says that blood is thicker than water. Well, that is only true for people who are outside the body of Christ because scripture actually tells us that the baptismal waters are thicker than our ancestral bloodlines. And it is baptism that introduces us into a, missional, a new missional purpose, into a new family, into a new way of being. And if we were ever to go out into the world and live in love as if we were truly a baptismal family, could you imagine how profoundly different the world would be? As we think about this, and we think about what it means to prepare the way for the Lord in this Lenten season, one of the great ironies for me is that as we preach and teach about what the gospel is calling us to in this season, and we think about fasting and the biblical call to fast and to pray, I very, very seldomly hear churches talk about Isaiah 58 in this season. And that's a critical text because it is the one place where we hear Jesus, I mean, God tell us what it means to fast faithfully. And so let me read a section of this for us in conclusion. It says, your fast, uh, why have we fasted? These are people talking to God. Why have we fasted, they said, and yet you have not seen? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, this is God replying, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you to do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day of people, a day for people to humble themselves? Is it not to, is it to only bow one's head like a reed and for the lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is this what your call, what, is this what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? And this is the Lord telling us what a fast should look like. Is not this the kind of fast I have chosen? to loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. 
then your light will break forth. I mean, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will be go, go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You see, sisters and brothers, when we make fasting into something that is just about stopping to drink coffee or giving up sweets, we are missing the point. We are not understanding the true call of the gospel, which is to live on mission, to make God's name known and love shown through how we choose to live in love. When we see suffering, we are supposed to be a peculiar people who enter in when the world tells us that we can turn a blind eye and act as if it doesn't impact us. We are called to be a people who declare to the world that we belong to Jesus by how we choose to live in love. And this season of Lent is a season where we're supposed to cultivate eyes to see the suffering around us, ears to hear the cries of our wounded neighbors, and hearts to respond with the love of Christ whenever we encounter it. Let me close with prayer for us during this season. God, may your spirit stir us to live in a way that declares that we belong to you. May our love be something that becomes attractional and infectious, that transforms lives and communities. May we love in a way that declares that something different is possible and that you are active and at work in our world, transforming brokenness into reconciliation and shalom. May we be a people, may Lake Avenue Church be a community that the world knows you are at work within because of how we choose to live in love. In your name we pray, amen.